0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think.
1: Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Welcome to Censored. I'm Eva Writnach, historian and book addict. According to the Irish censor, reading filthy books corrupts both mind and morals. I'm 27 books into a huge blacklist, and I don't feel any different. But maybe I'm corrupting all of you who listen to me talking about smut. I can but hope. You can find me on Twitter, at CensoredPod, if you want more corrupting influences. And you can support the show at patreon.com slash censoredpod. If you can rate and review the pod over on Apple, I'd be very grateful. I am beyond excited by the book for this episode. Chocolates for Breakfast by Pamela Moore caused a stir when it was published in 1956. The paperback edition sold 60,000 copies in just six months. Some believe this book caused the name Courtney to switch from a male to a female name in America. Courtney Love says her mother named her after the main character, Courtney Farrell. But I'm ashamed to say that I had never heard of it before. The only reason I came across Chocolates was because I was scanning the band list for reading for the podcast. The Irish censor didn't ban it until 1960, when it was published in London. Once I learned it was written by a 19-year-old and featured a teenage girl protagonist, I fist-bumped and added it to the list. Just two episodes ago, I read J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye, The Bible of Disaffected American Teenage Boyhood. I wanted to find a similar style of book written by a woman, and Chocolates for Breakfast seemed like the best option. It's the story of Courtney Farrell, the neglected daughter of rich divorced parents who lives first in Hollywood and then in New York. At just 16, she drops out of school and struggles to find a purpose or direction for her life. The book is full of cocktail parties and really creepy blokes. Now I've a lot of feelings about this book and why it was banned. And luckily, I have a great guest to explore these with me. Dr. Murano Kaneda is a lecturer in the School of English and the Creative Arts in NUI Galway. She studies Victorian women's travel writing in particular but has a personal interest in young adult fiction, especially that authored by women.
1: Hello, Myrne. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Aoife. Thank you for having me, particularly for this extraordinary book.
2: I'm really looking forward to this. And I suppose we should, in the interest of disclosure, tell everyone that, you know, I didn't just invite you because you read lots of books, but because, you know, we know each other for a very long
1: time. A very long time. An often shared reading history. Of book, books, books, more or less naughty, depending on content and and mood.
2: <laughs> True, we've come a long way since the chalet schools, or oh, have we? <laughs> <laughs> now, as is customary, I usually choose a drink that accompanies the book. For me, I thought anything with gin, but in particular, there was gin and grapefruit juice. That's quite summary, but I think I'd go for gin. How
1: about you, Maren? Did you have any preferences? Oh, so many possibilities. Uh, This is, of course, a book in which alcohol and the drinking of alcohol is actually, narratively speaking, uh, as important as sex, in fact, possibly uh, maybe even more so, Um, and often is interrogated in very troubling ways, you know, as a marker of adulthood, but also a marker of premature adulthood, a crutch escape from depression, Um, uh, often an overly valued symbol of masculinity, all of which is to say that the characters in this book drink an awful lot of an awful lot of drinks. So whatever your taste, you have multiple possibilities. Um, I think I would have to go for a martini. It is, of course, the sort of symbol of a certain type of decadent sophist- uh, bright young thing sophistication. Um, it's Courtney's first ever drink at a troublingly young age. It's the, first, the drink she has before losing her virginity. And in honour of the podcast, FIFA, I think it would have to be a dirty martini. <laughs> Excellent.
2: (laughs) But if you do want to embrace non-alcoholic beverages, uh, she does drink Coke when she can't get served any booze. Even the use of Coke in itself is quite interesting, like contrast between the alcohol and the non-alcoholic. Now that we have our drinks sorted, why was it banned is the question I always start with. And to be honest, it's more like, why wouldn't it be banned in this case? Because chapter one alone managed to commit a number of sins.
1: Which one do you think caught the censor's eye first? Oh, as you say, so many, so many possibilities. Of course, one of the great pleasures of this podcast as a listener is uh, listening for the moment where you think to yourself, Oh yeah, that'll do it. And then continuing and thinking, Oh, if that didn't, then that would have. Um, in this case, I figure page two, she just about made it on page one, at least of this, of the edition I'm reading, um, until. There's a young woman, a teenager, lying with her clothes off in a patch of sun across her bed. Now, the two girls aren't doing anything. This yeah, this other one, Janet, is just lying there. But I feel the very fact of a naked body was would itself have done it. Although, of course, there's a lot more coming up in a page or two. In a page or two, the main character, Courtney,
2: uh, turns out that she has quite a serious crush on her teacher, Miss Rosen, doesn't she?
1: Very much so. and. It's 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 been discussed. She's discussing it, or rather, her roommate Janice is is discussing and sort of rebuking her, and it's sort of viewing it as something that's sort of a bit unnatural. That's in fact distancing Courtney from friendships with her with her schoolmates. Um, and interestingly, Janice herself sort of say basically says, yes, you know, obviously people get these crushes, you know, in girls' schools on teachers. You know, she suggests that's kind of normal, but she's the one who kind of pushes it further, who explicitly identifies this crush and this this bur- burgeoning relationship however we might describe it, as potentially queer. She actually uses the word, I think. So I think that would immediately have sort of a censor who'd already maybe, maybe allowed the naked body would, would by this point, I think, be seizing for their pen or stamp or whatever.
2: Oh, for definite.
1: And that particular element of
2: queerness is expanded later, a few pages later. Page 14 I'm looking at now, and it's Courtney's actually meeting Miss Rosen in her study And I'll just read out this very short paragraph because I think it's quite interesting. Courtney stared moodily ahead. She knew that if she looked up at Miss Rosen while that hand was on her shoulder, she would get that funny feeling that she sometimes had when she was taking a bath or about to put on her pyjamas, as though a whole crowd of people were looking at her body. I just think that's really interesting about how she brings in nakedness and the consciousness of her naked body while talking about her reaction
1: to this teacher. And this teacher who herself, of course, is occupying a sort of complicated role, teacher, potential object of desire, also clearly a kind of substitute mother figure. They're all kind of uneasily present in this. And of course, just after that, she then says, "You told me once," she said, searching that you loved me. Miss Rosen took her hand away and sat in the bed facing Courtney. There's a sort of a moment here where, you know, the, the, the potential queerness of the scene is being sort of almost brought to the brought startlingly, I think, for readers to the surface. And Courtney herself is trying to, as you suggest, work out, in a sense, what is it she feels towards this older female figure.
2: And I thought there was quite a lot of references to homosexuality or queer sexuality th- that I thought were unusual for a book, not just of this time, but one that was explicitly about teenagers. And the main character that all a lot of this queer narrative is focused around was Barry, uh, a 28-year-old actor that she meets in Hollywood. And I mean, Barry ends up being her lover, even though he's introduced as a gay man at the very beginning um, it just seems like a very interesting discussion of that type of sexuality given it's the, it's nineteen fifty six
1: Yes, I think I expected that, you know, questions of queerness and, and alternative sexualities would be much more buried in the text, that we'd be, as it were, reading for them. And instead, they seem to be quite sort of relatively frankly discussed, you know, right from the beginning, as you say, that, Jan, that that distinction Janet makes between the sort of standard crushes and there's something queer about this. Um, and I think ba- it centres particularly in the figure of Barry, who I think is quite fascinatingly positioned in in, in the text, Um of course, Barry in many ways exemplifies the kind of the all too common sort of narrative of homosexuality as a sort of hidden shameful secret, something, something that has to be sort of buried. This is also, of course, um, a reflection of all too common uh, tales of real life Hollywood and actors who had to spend their lives uh, burying, uh, burying their sexuality and keeping, keeping it hidden. At the same time, Barry is positioned as a as a good lover, someone who is good in bed, who is a good, worthy first lover for Courtney. And there's a whole sort of conversation about that later. And I think yeah, I think that's a he, he's a particularly interesting figure in that sense.
2: He he really is, and there's there's quite a lot about sex with Barry, but I want to particularly talk about. The first time that Courtney has sex with Barry, which is the very first time she has sex with anyone. In fact, it's the first time she even kisses someone properly. This is from page 99, and in my notes I actually wrote, Alarmingly close to the magic cock trope. Listeners may know that I'm slightly obsessed with the magic cock trope, and it first appeared way back in season one in Forever Amber. And it features, you know, miraculous transformative sex between men and women. Uh, It's transformative for the women rather than for the men. We don't really hear anything about them. But I thought, I mean, I did think there were elements of the magic cock, but then I was like, hmm, maybe it's a little bit more
1: complicated than that. What did you think? Like you, I felt there were certainly elements of it, but I think in ways that... That actually, in some ways, we you take over that trope, if you like, and use it as a, in the cause of uh, female sexuality and female agency. Um, there's certainly here the kind of transformative narrative of loss of virginity. You know, love. She, I'm on page uh, page 99 here. Love. She had not known what it could be, and she would never live without it again. She had not known she would know so much about love the first time. The first time she could never be as she had been before. She could never see life as she had seen it before. Life with an entire sphere dimly seen. So there's very much the sense that loss of virginity is this major boundary or border into the true life, into reality and into adulthood. Um, there's certainly nothing here of the kind of ambivalence of say, uh, the uh, Esther, the protagonist in Platts, the bell jar. Her ambivalence about transformation and definitely none of the kind of messy, literally bloody, bodily aftermath of the the Belgeois loss of virginity tale. This is in many ways quite a sort of romanticised sex uh, scene and not not particularly described in any any way. At the same time, what I find powerful about this is the way that it's centrally about, rather than the man acting upon the woman to produce, that the story is about male agency and the production of transformation, it's about female agency and desire, as I said. Particularly the the chapter before, the page at the end of the chapter before she's about to sleep with Barry, it's very much centred in her and what she wants. She was aware, very aware of what was happening to her, but she wanted it. She wanted it. She had planned it, planned it long before he had ever thought of it. And she had asked him silently before he asked her because she wanted it so much. And this extraordinary line lying on the bed in the marvelous luxury of her own bo- young body, and this you know Courtney often has a sort of troubled and sort of self sometimes later in the novel self loathing relationship with her own body but there's also here and elsewhere interesting sense of a young woman sort of rejoicing in her own physicality and her own sensuality, so that this moment of sort of of uh, of having sex with Barry is a moment that she's planned and claimed and and later on, uh, she'll sort of push back against precisely the narrative of the young girl seduced uh, wickedly, seduced by the older man. You know that she'll very much claim her own agency and her own choice. She has a lot going on in her life. I mean,
2: she is at times deeply troubled. She self harms. She ends up in sanatoria. And I did think that the relationship with her family was a really interesting way of exploring how teenagers grow and develop within a family setting as opposed to sex, which is kind of making yourself outside of your family. And her mother, her mother was absolutely horrific. I mean, she's just an emotionally unavailable narcissist. Poor Courtney, you do feel very sorry for her. I mean, she's only 15 and 16 throughout this book. And she just seems so profoundly alone and so much more alone than, say, Holden Caulfield was in The Catcher in the Rye. At least he had... A sister to connect with. But it seems Courtney is absolutely bereft of good role models or good parenting in any way. How does family function in this narrative, do you think?
1: In a sense, I mean, family functions, I think, as a set of absences. Um, And it's not as simple as lack of parenting produces decadent sex, as it were. But there is a point, a really quite a heartbreaking point later in the novel where Courtney explicitly thinks, you know, she she basically says uh, she'll choose men over her mother because men are replaceable. So there is a sense in which, you know, the lack of parenting has produced a sort of a desire or a need that can't ever be filled. That's the point about being replaceable, um, but that also that she'll therefore seek after this other life. Um, when she's first sleeping with Barry and keeping it quiet from her mother, her mother's relationship with Barry is left somewhat ambiguous, but there's clearly some sort of connection between them. Um, there's a sense in which that she uses that relationship almost as a way to separate herself out from her mother, to say, I'm not her daughter, I'm a woman now. Um, and one of the sadder elements of the novel is that sense that Courtney's been forced into a premature adulthood where she's constantly having to sort of manage her mother. She's got a sort of, you know, affectionate but fairly distant father and fairly ineffectual father who was is, who is living on the other coast. Um, and she's very much having to sort of manage a mother who, as you said, is deeply self-centered. Um now, Sondra, I think, does get treated with a little more sympathy, perhaps, um, than that. She's not, she's not a complete monster in the text, and the text sometimes shifts into her perspective. She's her sort of aware in some ways of her own failings, but perpetually obsessively focused on what she on, on, on her own needs. And that then produces um, this tragic absence in Courtney's life. Um, That's figuring a wider societal failure, which is called out in the very first chapter, where Courtney's saying to Janet, basically, why do we have to lie to the parents? And of course, Janet's own parents are married, but deeply, deeply unhappy and abusive. So it's not just the mother specifically, it's a wider societal uh, la- la- lack of parents or bad parenting. Um, and of course, bad parenting also applies to often some of the, the the parental stand-ins, the figures who are unable, whether it's Miss Rosen or the, the teacher or whether it's the doctor who is sympathetic but can only help her in so many ways. Um, there's a number of figures that sort of fail Courtney, that sort of in different ways reject her or betray her.
2: Oh, yes. And we really have to talk about al who's her mother's friend and agent or manager i'm not quite sure but who sort of functions as a substitute father figure until things go really down the toilet and he turns out to be the biggest fucking creep
1: ever i hate him i hate him so much oh my god (laughs) Um, so, Al Leon is posi- comes up in the, one of the earlier chapters when the narrative sw- switches to the mother uh, back, sort of thinking about her daughter and rather guiltily feeling she should be maybe removed, you know, having her with her instead of in school. Um, and particularly, Al Leon is actually positioned in the early parts of the text as one of Courtney's few actual val- valuable parental figures. You know, he's a friend of her mother's, he's known her since she was a child. He's very much positioned as an alternative. A father figure. He's the one who's basically saying to the mother, "You must give." She hasn't been allowed to be a child. You have to give her some sort of childhood. However, once Courtney leaves school and comes out to and comes to her mother's, um, Al then uh, tries to sleep with her, and it's a really viscerally unpleasant scene. My notes for this read "ick, ick, 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 in several levels. Um, I was really disturbed by it on multiple ways. I'm sort of now thinking through. Um, I was. The obvious one of course is the huge gap in both power and age. The idea of this sort of father figure who suddenly and you know he's been there sort of he's rising her up to his place for a drink, he's giving her a massage, but I think for me it's the speed with which, you know, she becomes a sexual object for him. And it's a really troubling scene. I found, I found for me as a reader, it's also you know documenting that Courtney, in a sense, her body responds to him. She, you know the, Moore is writing in Courtney's sense of desire that she wants something like you know, for a moment, she wants this, and then she hears his voice, and there's, uh, she says, "You know, the it became real." and she turns her head away, and then he stops. And he stops, even his stopping is this creepy kind of, he says something to her like, oh, I knew you were decent. I'm glad you were a decent kid. So Thus evoking this language of shame and sexuality that he keeps battering her with. Um, and one of the things though I think is so interesting about this passage in the book is that this isn't just us as modern readers with our more, you know, more visible, more acute awareness of questions of power, dynamics of power and consent. Um the book itself, the novel, Moore, is is acutely aware of just how disturbing this moment is, which is something I was, as it were, pleasantly surprised by. Um, that she writes into it you near know, the moment where he says in page um, 58, 59, he had lost his right to guide her by becoming merely a man before her. It's a moment where he realises that because of this, because of having having tried to have sex with her, he's ter- you know he, he's lost the, the role he could have played, the role of sort of guide and father figure. And even later, when he's trying to give advice about Barry, he's positioned as kind of vicious and jealous and sort of bitter. So that's a significant loss for Courtney. Um I also think often when discussing these modern questions there's often a sort of pushback, a sort of, oh, well, you know, these things are, have, things are changing so quickly, it's all so confusing. I'm thinking, well, actually, literature has been grappling with questions of power and consent for decades. And there is something cheering to me in the idea that a, a novel in, 19, uh, in 1956 um, does, in fact, say that, you know, shagging or trying to shag a teenager to whom you've been a sort of father figure isn't mind-blowing and enlightening. Happening. It's creepy and emotionally damaging to her, a lesson which all too many male, male authors of the period and of later periods do not seem to have got.
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at Bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: A lot of the time we do say, oh, you know, standards have changed and people's perceptions have shifted. But I, I would challenge anyone to read this And to not see it as an indictment of what Al did, I mean, Moore is not excusing this. And she is, as you say, showing how Courtney is trapped within this uh, sexual double standard and ideas about femininity that means she has no choice but to just kind of put up with it, really, to accept it. And after this, I mean, it is an assault, really. After this assault, she's extremely alone. And so she ends up shagging Barry for an extended period of time. And one of the things that's, I suppose, most poignant about this part of the book is how she has no friends at all. She has no peers to hang out with or to talk to or engage with. And there is one friend who goes throughout the book, but not this period, who's associated with New York, and that's Janet. And I think Janet's really interesting, but it's that absence of Janet, I think, really shows up the power of their friendship. How do you think Moore deals with that close friendship between teenage girls?
1: Definitely to say one of the most interesting parts of the book. Um, and it is what it, it is structurally a little awkward in the book, I think, the way that Janet sort of disappears for quite a bit of it, and there, and when she comes back, sort of suddenly becomes a really important presence in Courtney's life, and of course uh, becomes de- and it turns out that Janet and what's going to happen to her is one of the main narrative arcs of the novel, one of the main transforming moments in Courtney's life. Um, so it's interesting because I thought of that disappear, that absence of Janet from the middle section as a sort of structural weakness, but I'm very interested in what you're saying that the, in a sense, though, it, it, it underlines uh, Courtney's sense of aloneness, that Janet's return to her life won't sort of solve an, everything or anything, in fact, because Janet herself is deeply troubled and deeply unhappy and herself the victim. Of sexual assault, she loses her virginity to to a rape basically um and you know, she and she's still bringing Courtney into these sort of social circles that are themselves still still seeped in, in alcohol in alcoholism and decadence if you like um but there's still that sense that finally Courtney has someone with whom she can connect someone she's actually not alone with and it's also though part of the tragedies of the novel though that um Courtney is also going. Going to end up to some extent betraying her. Um, I think one of the things I really like about this book is that it it keeps evoking sort of often familiar or well worn narrative tropes, but it does interesting things with them. So between two young women, girls best friends, there inevitably arises competition over a man. The sort of uh, the the hilariously uh, Oscar Wildean decadent uh, Anthony.
2: Oh yeah, I mean. Anthony, seriously, I was like,
1: no, don't, he's such a poser. Oh my God, I have poser, I have poser on my notes too. See, 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 I have poser written right here. <laughs>
2: yes, hmm? what a git. I was like, please don't, oh no, okay, you're going to do this, that's fine.
1: <laughs> I wasn't viscally upset the way I was with uh, with Al, because, you know, oh whatever, but really like, you know, really dude, uh, not really, really girl. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. In a sense, as I said, this isn't a sort of full-on betrayal. Um, you know, there is the Janet sort of desires him, but there isn't there isn't an established relationship there. Um, but Courtney withholds from Janet the, the knowledge that herself and Anthony are having a, a, a sort of secluded, if you like, but quite serious relationship um, because, and this what I find really tragic, um, that it's not just, oh, no, I can't tell her I've got her man, It's, again, connected to this wider sense of society's failure of them both, parents and society in general. Um, That sense that Courtney identifies it as that she she can't tell Janet because she'll just be one more betrayer of Janet. You know, Janet, who's been let down by her parents, whose friends basically use her for amusement and sex and then discard her or laugh at her behind her back. Courtney has that sense that she's both Janet's only real friend and also inevitably going Betray her. Um and in a sense she does, but of course the betrayal isn't isn't the one we expect, the revelation of her re- relationship with Anthony, not really. The betrayal is actually more prosaic. Um she's Janet's come to stay with her after a vicious fight with Janet's horrible alcoholic alcoholic abusive father. Um the self, uh, Courtney's uh, self-centred mother is basically like, ugh, she's so messy and tiresome, dear. I think we should boot her out. Um, but Courtney sort of shares that sense. She is frustrated at having Janet up in her, all up in her space. Uh, she feels sort of claustrophobic. She sort of accedes to that turning out of Janet, which will return Janet to her home and to what happens to her. So there's a sense of female friendship then as being, you know, the only people who can really understand you. But also tragically, how hard it is, in a sense, not to betray, to use a Waldian moment, uh, to betray the ones we love, um, or to kill the ones we love, literally. And there's a troubling sense in which Janet's death almost produces Courtney's life, or Courtney's after, after Courtney's aftermath, her, her sense of where she'll now take her life.
2: Yes, because after Courtney. Asked Janet to leave. I mean, legitimately, it's hard not to feel a certain sympathy for Courtney at that point. But it is, of course, asking Janet to return to an incredibly toxic environment that she had to escape from. And when Janet returns, it she opens her window in her flat and jumps out. And so she takes her own life as a result of having nobody to turn to, really, of being entirely alone.
1: And having been assaulted and having been assaulted by an alcoholic father in a deeply unsettling scene which
2: Oh yeah. I that was really oh,
1: yet another
2: creepy moment. I mean there is so much creepy stuff going
1: on. In an in an interesting way that's made troubling in the novel, rather than us just having to find it troubling, so props to Moore for that.
2: <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean this isn't you know, me just going, oh, that's inappropriate. It's like, it's clearly flagged as inappropriate, unsettling and very damaging. Um, and I was struggling to choose between her peers, the peers of the girls who are also gross. um, And then the older men, the father figures who are disgusting. So like, there
1: was a lot of failures all round, I felt when it came to the men. <laughs> There's an interesting figure Courtney meets towards the end, Charles Cunningham, who I think almost the text itself isn't quite sure what to do with. Um, In a sense, he's sort of narratively positioned as the sort of conservative option. Um, And it's the, the ending's a lot of ambiguity to it, but there is a kind of buried in it, in a way, a conservative option as a sort of conservative reading, which had the senses ever got through all the sex and queerness and decadence they might have been quite pleased with, which is Courtney's sort of this odd line about sort of basically saying that she'll no longer, in, in essence, she's no longer going to lead the life she's been leading and a life in which she's been thinking and talking a lot about uh, sex in relation to to sin and shame. Um, She would see Anthony but make a date with someone else, someone convenient like Charles, to have dinner with her parents. She would guard against herself. She would not make love again like that. She would wait until it was decent and sanctioned. But of course, also Charles himself isn't quite as staid a figure as this narrative positioning of him would suggest. That you meets him at a party where he's positioned as kind of maybe the next stage of adulthood, where he's cynically commenting on this world of drinking and debauchery as as almost childlike, a sort of a, a meaningless stage. But you know, what he step, but at, but it, uh, towards the end of the te- novel, he seems to be positioned as the kind of more traditional, as I said conservative ending, the the solid, sensible man whom she will marry, um, even if his own textual history in other versions of the text, and of course, his own potential relationship to uh, biographical figures in Pamela Moore's own life uh, creates that possible ending for Courtney as more complicated and more potentially troubling than just a kind of, oh good, she'll stop having all that naughty sex outside marriage.
2: <laughs> so just to draw our discussion of the text and all of its complications uh, to a close. Would you recommend it? Because I would. I thought it was a fascinating book. It was unexpected, and I would actually buy my own copy now to keep it in my bookshelves.
1: I definitely would. Um, you say it's a strange book. Um, it's structurally odd, and in some ways, like many a debut novel, it's sort of awkward in some ways. It's quite episodic. It isn't sort of strongly plot Even read as a female Bildungsroman, it isn't strongly <laughs> plot driven. And yet there's a remarkable and of haunting atmosphere to it, an exploration of psychology and a- agency and desire. And I think is really, really interesting. Um, we've evoked sort of those touchstones of uh, young adult, uh, young adult um, exploration and trauma, such as Catcher in the Rye and, late- and later the bell jar. Um, and of course, uh, Sagan's uh, Bonjour, Bonjour Trissesse is of course a uh, 1951, I think, is an earlier uh, is an earlier figure, um, potential influence. Um, Dunwoir herself uh, would also been very interested in figures like Fitzgerald. Um, but I uh, suppose I'm trying to say is I think these this text isn't just a kind of imitation. I think it's uh, it's both it's both in worthy company with those acknowledged classics of the form, and it's also doing its own particularly distinctive thing. It's a book that certainly in Ireland uh, we haven't come across, I think, very readily. I hadn't, certainly hadn't heard of it before you suggested it. You, you drew it from the depths of the censored list. Um, so ironically, uh, the censored list is now serving to expose us to more of this scurrilous content. Ah, well. <laughs> that That is the point of the podcast, <laughs>
2: Let's find the filth that we're missing out on. <laughs>
1: well, I'm delighted to say I think this is a particularly sophisticated, interesting filth that is well worth uh, the reader's attention
2: and I think we should play censorship bingo Ooh. to see just how interesting and filthy it I think is. This one might have quite a good score- high score. we'll see yeah, it should I mean there's quite a lot in it. I don't have things like uh, self-harm on my censorship bingo card, Um, so it's going to miss some things that would have offended the censors but are present in the text. And we start, as usual, with boobs. Yes, there were boobs in it, weren't there? There
1: were. Um, in a way, body, for all the sort of awareness of bodies, body, bodies and body parts aren't actually discussed in that much detail. As I said, the sex scenes aren't particularly explicit or even aren't explicit at all in many ways. Um, so not, not, as, not as boobs forward as one might one might expect, but I believe they are there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, there's a mention of them. Well, there's nudity. So there you go. Implied boobs. Next one, bestiality. Uh, no, I didn't think so. God, I don't think so. <laughs> no, would have, Surely, would have We that. can't
1: be. We can't be that corrupted yet. We'd have noticed, right?
2: <laughs> we would have. Sex work. I actually didn't think there was any sex work in no,
1: this. No, sometimes I think references the idea of prostitute or whore, but I think that's often more of an insult. Um, and I don't think I don't remember any any uh, sex work as a narrat- as a narrative element.
2: Yeah, so we can I don't think we can take that one. Racism. I can't say that there was much about racial politics, although of course there was a lot of talk about Courtney and her mother as Irish. But I think that's not so much racism as a sort of ethnic stereotyping. More, I think. No,
1: certainly when we consider the 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 position, the time, and positioning of racial politics, uh, racial politics in the states at the time, I mean, you can certainly point to it the relative whiteness of its world. Uh, even the jazz they listen to is the, I believe, uh, fairly white. Uh, Stanley, Ken- Stan Kenton. So even though there's obviously a whole racially racially politicized world out there, it's not uh, it's not particularly brought into uh, into the foreground here.
2: Yes, these are very posh white people. Uh, drugs. I didn't remember any drugs at the parties other than booze. Yes, of I,
1: I, I, I'm surprised a little thinking about it. it f- they felt like the sort of parties where we might, be, we might, we might, in other words, be missing a passing reference to drugs. But mainly, the party descriptions are more centred, are much more centred on booze.
2: Politics. I didn't think so. I mean, it's written in the 50s, but that doesn't feel like the Red Scare is permeating through this
1: text. No, and. Uh, We don't have time to go into this here, but of course, uh, one of the many strangenesses of this text is also that it's haunted by its French editions, the later revised ones that Moore herself, when she was over in France, tried to bring into being, um, which suggests a potentially more radical or more politicised take on this text, where part of Courtney's um, gradual awareness is also a perhaps vague, but still significant sense of a desire for revolution and social upheaval, even, you know, references to empire and metropolis. Um, But those don't make it it into the first published text and never really come through. So there is a buried, more political version of Chocolates for Breakfast, but not in the one we're reading.
2: Yes, and you can explore the uh, alternative texts in the appendices at the back of the book. So you can kind of get a sense of that. And next up, swearing. I didn't think. Well, no, there really was very little foul language, was there? No, oh,
1: there's a certain amount. Um, there's a certain amount of swearing and uh, copious use um, of the f-word, which I presume would have been seen as a kind of swear at the time, or uh, uh, at least a deeply questionable word, for certainly by Irish senses, um, though not for the reasons we would think so. Um, but I can't. Uh, the swearing, but not a great deal. Hmm. Should I think we, we take sure, that? Should though, on the whole, I'm fairly sure there was at least a certain amount of goddamming and.
2: Yes. And I think any, any swear word is enough, really. Infidelity. Uh, well, yes. I mean, Sandra appears to have Sandra and her husband appear to have had that sort of a relationship where their divorce came from infidelity. So I think we yes, could it's important. Courtney's
1: stepfather, it's certainly implied, has been sleeping around. So I think uh, we'll allow it. <laughs> yes. Crime. Well,
2: obviously taking, taking your own life is a crime, but Janet
1: shoplifts, I'm
2: pleased to report. <laughs> oh yes she does she does excellent we'll take that one genitalia i mean no because it's the sex that happens it does happen between the lines as in you're brought up to the moment and then afterwards but there isn't much of a description of the act itself between
1: the lines and between the sheets Ha!
2: <laughs> <laughs> excellent abortion uh i didn't think so no did i miss it there was worries about conception, but
1: not abortion. I thought. No, I don't think so. Anyway, I think of the many bad things that happened to Janice. I think even that that doesn't, in fact, happen. Uh, Courtney is worried about potential for pregnancy. It's part of what makes her feel her relationship with Barry feel. It's part of what makes her feel her relationship with Barry is sort of somehow a bit grubby and secret, having to worry about that. Um, but uh, no abortion.
2: Orgies. Uh, no, I didn't think it ever got that spicy. No,
1: some of those party scenes uh, felt like they might—they had the potential for lots of sex to be happening in bedrooms, but uh, not really orgies, I think.
2: Next is sexual assault. Well, yes. I mean, if we could take it more than once, we would. Yes. Extramarital pregnancy. Well, it does appear as a vector haunting Courtney during her affair with Barry. Uh, now, she doesn't get pregnant, but she does refer to it's possibility and how scared she is of it. So I think we could tick that. Masturbation. No, I didn't think so.
1: Which is surprising in a way. I mean, it's a book, I said, that's very aware of female body and female desire. But, the, the you know, Courtney sort of positions, or positions herself as, as it were, you know, itching and ready and longing for release, but longing for sex. But there never seems to be a sense that she can do anything about it other than find the right man to have sex with.
2: And then we have sex toys. Well, no, there wasn't. As, I mean, if there's no masturbation, I suppose there's unlikely to be much in the way of sex toys.
1: Poor girl. <laughs> Deprived. Next up, feminism. I have a feeling, now I think about it, that Janet's horrible father has some drunken thing about how feminine, wait, 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 I think we might have something where I'm pleased to report where femin- he says something like feminism is just a way of uh, thinking of declaring Zelda Fitzgerald to be a better writer than Scott Fitzgerald.
2: Oh, yes. But I'm pretty oh.
1: sure. So actually, we have explicit discussion of feminism.
2: So yes, we can take that. Yay. Divorce. Well, yes, her parents are divorced. So we have to take that one. Next one is contraception. Well, She doesn't appear to be using any contraception when she's having her affair with Barry. At least that is my impression, but I could be wrong. No, I
1: think there's a reference to counting, which of course suggests uh, the probably unwise use of the of Catholic rhythm method. Um, so a surprising absence of a contra- of contraception, but you'd think that given the world circle she's moving in, but of course, again, she doesn't have these sort of sets of connections and friendships that might produce this sort of assistance to her.
2: That's true. And she is Catholic. It's stated uh, quite explicitly that she's Catholic. So it's possible she's using the good old Vatican roulette instead of condoms. And then we have menstruation.
1: No. I don't think so, no. Blasphemy. Yes, I'm pleased to report there is excellent blasphemy. It is hidden, of course. Or not hidden, but it is only... It is a passing moment, but an extraordinarily disturbing one. Well... There is the moment the discussion with Anthony where Anthony is claiming, as it were, that the morality of the body is sort of uh, is is intrinsic to Catholicism. Um, and he's sort of playfully and sort of. So I think there's an, there's something that might well be perceived as somewhat blasphemous there. His insistence that the, the, his, his, as it were, gospel of sensuality is intrinsic to Catholicism. But much more disturbing than that would be, I think, the scene where Courtney is self-harming and sort of embarks in this meditation about Christ and sacrifice and sinning, strength to be good, but maybe the greater strength to sin. It's a really strange passage. And I think it, as it were, spikes into a brief moment of what might well be seen as blasphemy.
2: Oh, yes. Do drive them round the twist, given that the censors at this point, the board is chaired by a Catholic priest.
1: <laughs> uh, that would do it. And uh, and yes, page yeah. uh, one one two one end of chapter twelve. There, if anyone's looking for it.
2: Excellent. So we have blasphemy. Wonderful. Oral sex. Uh, no, like we said, it's there's no really description of acts of sexual acts. Graphic violence. Well, yeah, I think the descriptions of Janet's father and the violence that he inflicts upon his family is it's really disturbing.
1: And in the final pages of. Uh, Towards, uh, well, towards the end of the novel, when we move towards Janet's suicide, there's that slightly un- uneasy narrative switch to Janet's perspective, or, you know, the switch to focalizing through Janet's perspective. Um, and we sort of have that moment where her father attacks her directly, as it were.
2: Yes. So we can definitely take that. And finally, queer content. Well, absolutely, really
1: considerable both, both both unusual I think both in its you know active textual acknowledgement of the poss- of queerness both uh, bo- both female and male queerness as it were. Um, but also I think the, the interestingly complex amb- ambiguity as we talked about the the reluctance to categ- to place figures like say Barry into clear sexual categories. So not just queerness but sophisticated complex queerness. I'm
2: telling you this, this book is doing a lot <laughs> right. 12 out of 25. I mean, that's really good.
1: Well done, Pamela Boer. Respect.
2: I mean, I'm so pleased that for once the score lives up to the feeling of a book, that the the book felt quite transgressive, challenging, and just so unusual that I I was really hoping it would do well. So I'm very chuffed with that. And I think we'll conclude by saying you should all read this book because it's really good. Seconded.
1: The one warning I would give is that the title is uh, shockingly and interestingly misleading for all the various acts of sin and decadence uh, in the book. No one does, in fact, I think, eat chocolates for breakfast. I know, it's very sad.
2: I mean, there's so much booze. There's not a lot of food, to be fair. I think
1: the chocolates might be symbolic. (laughs) Uh, But of what?
2: (laughs) (laughs) We can only guess. That's the great thing about it. Marin, thank you so much. This has been such fun and I loved reading this book and it was great thank to to you about Thank you so much for, that,
1: for giving me the chance to read this book. Very excited by it. Well,
2: Chocolates for Breakfast was unsettling, but in the best possible way. Next episode, I'll turn from soulless cocktail parties to Satanism. The Irish censor banned Ethel Mannon's Lucifer and the Child, a book from 1946. There should be witchcraft, magic and much blasphemy. Till then, treat yourselves to chocolates for breakfast, symbolic or otherwise.